How's it going, listener? Ryan here for this week's episode of Across the Bifrost, where we explore the world of Marvel's Mighty Thor. Everyone, I am beyond excited for today's episode. We are talking with Marvel writer Mackenzie Lee today. She wrote a fantastic book in 2019 called Loki, Where Mischief Lies. I had the opportunity to read it this last week twice. It was so good. I had to read it twice. And we talk with her for, we talked with her for so long that we're going to make this a two part issue. You get part one this week. You'll get part two next Monday. So excited to talk to her. We have a great time talking literally everything, literally everything about working with Marvel, writing a book around Loki. We talk about just, we even talk about Star Wars. We talk about writing fan fiction. So much is covered in this conversation. I know you are going to enjoy it. I, I, I just know you're going to enjoy it. For those of you that are joining us for the first time today, first of all, Welcome to Across the Bifrost. We're so glad to have you. Thank you for stopping by and listening today. If you would, before you leave today, subscribe to the show, rate us five stars on iTunes, and then leave us a review. Tell us what you enjoyed about the show today. You can also go to our Instagram, follow us at Across the Bifrost, and then on Twitter, follow us at Across Bifrost. Like I said, we have a great conversation coming up with Mackenzie Lee. Later on in the show, we're also going to break down Loki, Episode 5, Journey into Mystery. I loved that title. It was so uh, just awesome to hear that be referenced (laughs) explicitly in a Marvel title. So we're going to talk about Journey into Mystery, Loki, Episode 5, later on in the show. It is going to be just a packed show today. So enjoy the interview, enjoy the breakdown of Loki, and I'll be back at the at the end of the show to talk about what's coming up on Across the Bifrost. Okay, everybody, I am here for a great interview today with Mackenzie Lee. She is the author of an amazing book uh, that came out a few years ago, Loki, Where Mischief Lies. And since Loki is on everyone's mind right now, I wanted to get her on the show and talk about this awesome book. So Mackenzie, Welcome to Across the Biofrost. We are so excited to have you today. I'm so excited to be here and so excited to be talking about Loki. So uh, I I like to ask my guests this uh, really simple question just so we can get to know you a little bit. Where in the nine realms do you call home? Uh, (laughs) Midgard, technically. Um, Specifically within Midgard. Right now I'm I'm in Salt Lake City, Utah. Okay, okay. Salt Lake City on Midgard. I've gotten a lot of great answers to that question. All... Oh no, were people like cheeky and sassy about that question and I just gave you like straight answers. No, no, <laughs> it's, it's, it's totally fine. Uh, I, I have one guest that comes on pretty regularly and he says, sadly, still on Midgard. Yeah, um, I mean, that's, that's kind of the answer. I keep waiting for portals to open up or yeah, the bypass to appear, but nothing yet. I would love to interview someone that isn't from this realm, uh, but I the want ult- the ultimate get for a podcast. Oh my gosh, that would be amazing! Uh, I wanted to, uh, for my listeners, just get to know you a little bit. I- I've dug into your bio uh, a little, but just give them a kind of a taste of like your writing origin story because you are an author uh, at heart. I I am. Uh, my writing origin story is also kind of my reading origin story. Um, when I was when I was a kid, I was I was a big reader, like a lot of us are as kids. Um, I look back now though, and I don't think I was a very good reader because mostly I I wanted to read the same books over and over and over again because I knew what I was getting into. They were familiar. Um, I didn't like reading any anything too hard, anything that kind of challenged me, I would just give up on. Um, I didn't want to work at reading. I just wanted it to be pleasurable. Uh, and most of what I read was uh, like like Star Wars franchise novels. So I, I came of age, I'm not sure how old you are, uh, so I won't make assumptions, but I came of age in this sweet spot of Star Wars fandom where I was too young to realize the prequels were garbage. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah, so I they hit me right <laughs> at the right moment where I was just a young enthusiast who was just so excited there was more Star Wars. And I had no taste, I had no, I had no uh, real opinions. Uh, and so I just, I was excited there was more Star Wars. I loved the prequels. I still have a very 
soft spot in my heart for the Star Wars prequels and once said that in front of a room of librarians as like a getting to know you fun fact. And I got booed. Oh my gosh. Never had that happen before. Um, but I'm a big Star Wars prequel defender, even though I now know they're, they're questionable. Me too. Uh, okay, I, was, I, I was nine years old when Phantom came out. Phantom Menace changed my life. And I like, I will like hopelessly devoted, like fight for that movie. As, oh. I mean, that's a, that should be a different podcast episode then. We'll come on your Star Wars podcast and we can talk about that. Darth Maul I, changed my life. So, it's, oh my gosh. Ugh. Excellent. Darth Maul was not, for me, it was Anakin. Because I was also like a young kid with too many feelings who didn't feel like <laughs> I was, uh, like, you know, you feel, I mean, everybody feels this way as a kid. You feel different than everyone around you. And Anakin, for me, kind of personified having more emotions than I could fit inside of me and more emotions than I felt like I was supposed to have. So I, I loved these like Star Wars prequel novels that the Scholastic Book Order would put out. Yeah. Uh, it was like, uh, there's like the Jedi Apprentice books and then the Jedi Quest books, which are the first ones are about Obi-Wan and uh, Qui-Gon on missions. And then the other ones are about- Oh, Anderson speaking my language. I loved them. I still have them all. I was running for a long time, this like long con as a 12 year old with the Scholastic Book Order where you could sign up for the Star Wars book club for a month for free and then after that you would have to pay and so I kept signing up and then they would send me the free book for the month and then I would un unsubscribe I would, I would unsign up and then I would sign up under a different name or I would make my friends sign up and then I and um, I said I also told that story at a, a Disney dinner a couple of years ago and uh, right afterwards these two lovely people came up to me and were like hi we're from the Scholastic Book Order and oh like, my god do I owe you god um so I'd like boasted about running this like Star Wars book scheme anyways <laughs> Going backwards though. Um, so I, I read a lot of Star Wars books. Uh, young adult literature was not really a thing when I was was growing up. And so when I kind of fit, aged out of middle readers and out of these Star Wars books, I was sort of expected to immediately go into reading mostly classics, like the kind of stuff you get assigned in English, English yeah. class, or, or go into reading adult lit. And it was too hard for me. And I, I just couldn't get into it. I didn't want to read it. Uh, and so I just stopped reading books forever uh, and kind of forgot that I loved to read. And uh, either suffered or spark noted my way through everything I was assigned in, in college and high school. Uh, but what I did do a lot in high school was I wrote fan fiction uh, for Star Wars, probably because I had like run out of these prequel novels and I was like, well, yeah. gotta get more. Um, Just write my own. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and so I, I read and wrote a ton of fan fiction and that kind of taught me how to be a writer without me realizing that's what was happening. Awesome. Um, and so I, I feel like my education as a writer was was my my first education. I do have an MFA. I'm I'm kind of qualified to be here, um, but but my first education was really in fan fiction. And uh, I went on. I I got a degree in uh, history. I wanted to be a professor of history and go into academia and all of that. And I was going to study uh, the Wars of the Roses, which is an English social conflict. And uh, so I was living in England at the time and like really thinking seriously. I was going to write about this and this was going to be my life. And uh, I had a professor, my, my advisor over there, very kind of gently say, you can't write the way you're writing. You either need to stop like writing dialogue for Henry V in your academic papers, or maybe you need to try writing something else. And I was like, well, I wanna write dialogue for Henry V. And she was like, then maybe try writing something else. Um, and so at the time, because I was, in, I was in England, I was traveling a lot, I was seeing Europe uh, on my shoestring budget. Um, and spending a lot of time in airports and bus stations and train stations and sort of having this like what do people do to entertain themselves I didn't have a, like it was before smartphones and I didn't have my laptop with me ever and yeah and um, I was like what are these strange bookshops that keep popping up and in all of these stations I'll try one of these paper rectangles I guess um and ended up getting back into reading kind of right at the same time that uh my professor was steering me towards maybe trying to write something else um, so I started writing again. I started writing my own original fiction, uh, uh, most of it historical, and then ended up getting an MFA and then was really, really lucky timing wise that I sold my first novel um, about a month after I finished my MFA. Uh, and then a couple of years later, had a book called The Gentleman's Guide to Vice and Virtue. That yeah. Hit, yeah, that hit really big, not really big, it hit lucky. Um, and uh, just so happened that one of the editors at Marvel Press was reading it at the same time she got approval to hire a writer for a series of historical anti-hero novels she had been pitching. And um, 
was it was kismet. It was meant to be. I'm so sorry for your podcast listeners if you get any uh, ambient background noise of my dog crunching on a jar of peanut butter. That's fine. Uh, They're used to ambient noise of my kids in the other room. Okay, so. yeah. It sounds like there's like somebody's breaking bones in the background of my. <laughs> uh, so that actually like brings us right up to your relationship working with Marvel. So, like. As a longtime comic book reader, when I when I'm like, oh, I get to talk with someone who worked with Marvel, can you like for those of us that may never get to work with Marvel, can you take us through that process? What is that like? Yeah, it's really it's really surreal, especially as someone who's um like as a kid, I didn't want to write books. I wanted to write Star Wars books and didn't know how to do that and didn't think that I thought that was like a career that would never be available to me because I don't know I I don't know the right people or I the right doors I don't know how to I didn't know how to do that um and so it was very it was very surreal and very cool and the first like couple of months I worked on Loki every time I would uh I feel like I would sit down to write my brain would be like no okay you got to do your real work now you got to go do what you're getting paid for and I was like this is my real work (laughs) um yeah it was like a weird it was a weird kind of switch to flip because it felt like it felt like goofing off for so long when you're like spending all this time watching the Marvel movies and reading the comics. And it's like, can I have to do real work? This is my life. It's super cool. There's, I mean, there's moments that I feel incredibly, incredibly cool and swaggery. And I love bragging about what I do. And I love when people ask me that, like I tell people I'm a writer and you can tell that's sort of like, oh yeah, what do you write for? I'm like, I write for Marvel, ever heard of it? Um, never heard of it <laughs> never actually said that before I should next time oh man uh, that's a big and, flex you yeah it is and that's like oh, a yeah. it's a cool flex I it's feel like cool. the biggest flex it is I'm I'm so proud of what I do and it's so cool to be working like I, I'm gonna keep referencing fan fiction but like part of why I love fan fiction is that idea of you're all working within a bigger universe to expand it and create more stories and you're interacting with other creators and other readers and and you're all working with the same source material and then making it bigger and making it into something else and it's so cool to be doing that in an official capacity and to be it, it feels sort of generous to even consider myself contemporaries with some of these people but to be working on the same the same characters and the same storylines and contributing to these these incredible decades long story arcs and characters and and the journeys that people have had with them as characters from when they were kids like people people carry these characters with them their whole lives. They're foundational to who they are. And it's such a, it's such a cool thing and such a privilege really to be, to be bringing my, to be asked to bring my voice to that. So that you just highlighted something for me that I think listeners need to understand this. The characters that Mackenzie wrote in this book are 60 years old. Like, well, and then some of them are 20,000 years old. From yeah, the, even like, even like if you go even further with North, Norse mythology and stuff, like you are like, you are in a legacy of, of creators like Stan Lee and Jack Kirby and Walt Simonson and, and even up to, you know, modern day uh, Jason Aaron, guys that I really enjoyed their creative expression with these characters. But now I have, I have this awesome book where Loki was just expounded upon so much. I almost looked at, I almost looked at it as like a, like a Loki prequel. And uh, what, what were some of your goals in like being given this character? What were some of your, like, here's what I want to do with Loki in this book? Well, so the series was pitched to me as writing three books about anti-heroes in the Marvel universe as teenagers or sort of with Loki because, oh my gosh, if I could tell you how many conversations I've had about timelines and Asgard and how time moves. And I didn't know there's gonna be math involved in this job, let's say that. Um, <laughs> but so so he, anti-heroes in the Marvel universe who are sort of younger than we've seen them before. Okay. Um, and so for me, when when we start talking about this, Loki, Loki's earlier on in his many timelines many lives than he than he sort of has been in most of the comics or or most of the films or in most incarnations people know him from and so he's still and this is part of what I love about young adult literature so much is that it's about young people deciding what kind of adults they want to be 
Um, and so we see Loki kind of in a more, a more nebulous place where he's still not sure if he, he, he kind of understands he has this capacity to do good and a capacity to do evil or do less good things, um, to be self-serving or to sort of serve the, the greater good. And he's still not totally sure which one he's going to, which one he's going to pick and which direction he's going to go. Um, and so for me, I wanted to bring that, that sort of uncertainty to the character in a way that we don't see him when he's a little bit farther down his journey and a little bit more well-formed. We know him as like the trickster God. So I wanted there to be a little bit more innocence to him maybe is the right word. Um, and, and just like an exploration of his identity as a young person, as a teenager, as someone coming of age while also being a, being a literal God. <laughs> so, so, so with, with a character who is like your, which I probably need to get this out of the way, is your book canon within, where does it sit canon wise within Marvel? I have no idea, but it's no canon. idea. It's got the, it's got the little Marvel stamp on the front. It's totally canon. Um, I okay. think I, I, I hesitate to place it because every time I try and place things, I always feel like somebody's like, ah, but there's this comic. You didn't think about this one and you didn't. And I'm, <laughs> I'm not a, I, I get very stressed about offending the completest comic nerds. Uh, uh, so I would say it's one of the earliest times we see Loki, but even that's hard to say because he dies and comes back to life so many times in the comics and he has so many different timelines. And um, I mean, we're seeing that in the TV show right now that that's kind of being literally. Oh gosh, yes. <laughs> um, so I would say this is, this is pretty early in his first, in his first incarnation. He's not, he's not been kid Loki. He's not been Loki for president. He's not uh, fought the Avengers, none of that yet. Okay. So, so, so when you're given this character, how much freedom are you given? Like, were there certain things you couldn't do? Yes, there were things I couldn't do. Uh, I, I sort of went into this project ready to, like, I, I would have done it. I was so excited about this. I was like, I'll do it for free. And my agent was like, absolutely not. You will not do um, it for free. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I kind of thought I was going to go in and they would say, okay, here's like an outline. You can write the dialogue. You can maybe add a little bit here and there, but pretty much you need to stick to this storyline. And they really brought me in to create the story and to develop a story and to, to bring my own spin to this. So part of what I talked to with my, my editor early on was she was like, we'd love for these books to all have kind of a history historical bend to them, which is part of why they hired me specifically. Um, and so she had kind of come up with, she's like, we've thought about a couple of time periods we could put Loki in because he he exists on his own timeline and because time is different in Asgard, we can really like play with this and have fun. And um, so she had talked about, you know, we really want to do it in a timeline or in a time in history where people recognize it. So you're not, I'm not gonna have to spend a ton of time info dumping about what's going on in the world around him. She's like, we're not gonna put Loki in like the 1630s Dutch golden age. Uh, instead, let's put him in something that's probably gonna be a little bit familiar to most people. So we talked about like a medieval kind of Game of Thrones setting. Uh, we talked about the 1920s Gatsby, Jazz Age, oh, kind of a thing. Um, I brought up the Victorian England though, because it's a familiar time period, but also there's so much uh, there's so much about death that's happening in that in that time period and so much anxiety yeah. about death and so much superstition. It felt like there was naturally so much uh, mysticism and magic that was sort of endemic to the culture at the time. Um, and also, I always with Marvel go back to the the order and order and death, chaos and life kind of Thanos thing. Um, and so for me, it felt like a really natural place to put Loki. Um, just in, and just in terms of like, it's the world is changing. The world is go, undergoing this mass industrialization. There's disease, there's people, like it's, it's chaos. And it's, that's sort of part of his, part of his brand. <laughs> and, and, and like the use of, for those of you that haven't gotten to read the book yet, what the heck are you doing? Go read the book. Also, there's this big, the, 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 one of the sub themes is the Necropolis Railway. Mm -hmm. And I was like, when I, when I saw the references of that and, you know, when he, when he shows up on Midgard for the first time, I was like, oh, he runs into a train. And uh, I was like, hold on, I'm guessing the time period. I'm guessing what they would have used trains for and why it's going, the place it's going. I'm like, oh my gosh, 
I heard about this on a Stuff You Missed in History class episode. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, I actually know about this. Uh, and I, it was kind of cool for me, like as a history nerd, to be like, okay. Because I didn't know it was a historical fiction, like, uh, approach to the character. Oh, what a nice surprise. So I was like, okay, this is interesting. And like, there's a there's some like, I'm, I'm, obviously you wrote the book. I'm not going to tell you what you intended, but like, I got some Jack the Ripper vibes. Oh, absolutely. And okay. that was part of, part of what I brought to the book too, was like the things I love, which I love superstition around death. I think death rituals and what, uh, what we think about death and what that tells us about our views on on life and the world around us, I think is fascinating. Um, I took a class in college about death and the Civil War and how the American Civil War sort of changed attitudes about death and dying. And it's one of those, I couldn't tell you any other class I took in college, but man, that one's just like cemented in my brain. Um, I, I love the sort of spiritualism of the time. I love both the spiritualism and the debunking of spiritualism, which I find fascinating. Um, one of my, one thing I didn't end up including in the book because it ended up taking place a little bit later was uh, Harry Houdini who hated spiritualists because I think his mother had like, I think he, or I think he was trying to contact his mother and it didn't work and he was devastated. Something, Houdini had a bone to pick with spiritualists. And so he like had a squad of ghostbusters in New York that would like go undercover and go to the seances and expose these mediums as frauds, oh. um, which like, somebody write that TV show, please. Like, I loved that. So <laughs> I love the like seances. I, uh, the Necropolis Rail, which you mentioned, uh, I think I saw that on like a Buzzfeed list or something and then ended up digging more into it, um, which was in London at the time because there was so much death. They literally ran out of places to put the bodies. Yeah. Um, and so they, they built a train line just to carry dead people about 45 minutes outside of the city to then oh bury them in the cemetery, which like, as a writer, I'm like, oh my God, there's a train of dead people that ran from London every day. Like, come on. That's just like my, my, one, of my one of my best sources for the book um, was I bought, uh, I bought a PhD thesis that someone had written about the Necropolis Rail. And it was wildly helpful because it had all the like the timetables and the prices and they, like all these different things. I'm pretty sure this lovely man in England had never like no, no casual observer is just like, I'm gonna buy the PhD thesis on the Necropolis Rail. And so he like sent me an email and as soon as I purchased it, he was like, thank you so much for your purchase. I'll have it in the mail right away. And he like wrapped it for me and wrote like a little card. <laughs> I, was like, I didn't tell him what it was for because I don't think the book was announced at that point, but I was like, oh. His research went to a great cause. <laughs> I don't know if he'd be like delighted or horrified depending on what kind of academic. Wait, hold on, you used it to do what? Yeah. <laughs> Well, academics are really precious about their materials yeah um but yeah so there's some jack the ripper i love true crime um there's also one of the things that ended up in the book that's real history is the the, the hell clubs um which was a real yes. part of of sort of victorian i think it was more prominent in france at the time but it also happened in england which were these like theme bars and the theme was death and hell which like again and i also loved because i love things in history that you find that prove that people don't really change. Like we're all kind of always the same. And so I love, I'm like, of course the Victorians are having like theme parties like we are. And of course they have like their equivalent of like, we now have Victorian steampunk bars and they had like hell bars and inferno bars. And I just, I was so, the pictures are wild. If you look it up, there's like coffin tables and these yeah. terribly, terribly upsetting statues. And um, so yeah, it just, there, I don't remember what your question was. I'm just talking well, about You even came up with, because I remember from those chapters in the book, you came up with themed drinks. And it's like- That was a real thing. That's the, awesome. The, the drinks, they would serve drinks and name them after different diseases. So you would like go up to the bar and be like, can I have a cholera please? <laughs> Which again, we love a novelty drink. Gosh. So with you, like you're given this world, you know, and my podcast exists to explore all of Thor's world, which includes Loki's world. So when you go, when you approach this character, were there any other, like, what did you do to research Loki and the, like to inform your interpretation of the character? What did you do ahead of time to like really get to know the character? Uh, I did too much, actually. I was okay. so going into this, I was so conscious of the literal 10,000 years of history behind this character. I was so conscious of the, the fandom that exists for him within Marvel, but also like outside of Marvel, like people, people reinterpret Loki. There's so much fiction about Loki. There's 
reimaginings of the Norse myths. They're like, he's such a, he's a part of Western pop culture in a way outside of Marvel even that most like most mytholo mythological figures are not. Um, and I also, like I said, I was so, I was not a comic book reader as a kid. I like desperately wanted to be a comic book reader and didn't know how to be and felt like comic books were inaccessible. They were so masculine. I didn't know who to ask, I didn't have the internet. So I wanted to read comics and couldn't figure out how. And so when I got hired for this job, I was so conscious of how much I hadn't read. And I was like, oh my gosh, somebody's gonna call me out. Somebody's gonna be like, well, in this issue of Journey into Mystery, have you, what do you think of the, how does this, and I panic every time I do a panel, I'm like, who's gonna like expose me as a fake nerd? Who's gonna um, be that guy? Oh, my dog just came in. Um, <laughs> Hi puppy. Hi. That is a massive dog. <laughs> Big one. <laughs> It sounded like there was someone being murdered in the background. No, no, no. Uh, it's fine. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I decided I was going to read every version of Loki that ever existed. And I was going to read every comic and I was going to read every Tumblr post and I was going to read every version of the myths and the poetic Ada. And I became so obsessed with like making my Loki part, like everyone, also everyone have contained pieces of everybody else's Loki that I kind of, I wrote the book three or four times, to be honest, in the first couple of times, the, the draft was just lifeless. And so much of that was because I wasn't bringing anything of myself to it. And I wasn't bringing anything of myself to the character because I was so obsessed with trying to make Loki, Stan Lee's Loki and Jack Kirby's Loki and Neil Gaiman's Loki and Tom Hiddleston's Loki and Tumblr's Loki, that there wasn't room for me to bring any of my own interpretation to it. So I read a ton. And then what I ended up doing was letting a lot of it go um and right. ignoring it and trying to trying to focus on my interpretation of the character rather than and just also recognizing that like you're not going to please everybody so many people who love loki are go will be going into this book with such specific expectations um that you can't possibly meet them all so why not just like have fun blow it up a little bit make it mackenzie yeah. loki yeah well and so with the research you even in the book you even allude to that with when when Theo knows more about Loki than maybe Loki even knows about Loki by reading the books and the myths that they, I mean, it's when we'll get that later when we talk about like all the different relationships that Loki has, but like Theo has a very uh, preconceived notion of what Loki should be like. And Loki gets furious because he's like, oh, this is what you guys already think of me. Yeah. I thought that was awesome. Thank you. That's included in there, that the myth is included in there. Well, and that was another thing about Victorian England was that the the Norse mythology was very trendy at the time. Um, reading it and studying it and things like that and translations of the, the myths were very popular. And so I sort of realized that early on that I was like, Loki exists in this world, not the, like in the Victorian England that he visits. And I remember talking to my editor and being like, should we just ignore this fact? Like should we just assume this is a version of Victorian England where he doesn't exist? Because I mean, sometimes you do, you take liberties like that. Um, and the more we talked about it, the more I was like, this is fascinating though. If the whole book is about choice and free will and how much of your future is already, is already dictated for you. And if the choices you make are just playing into an inevitable end or if you can actually change the future, it would be fascinating to have Loki sort of interact with his own, his own mythos, which he doesn't no exists and this this these preconceptions so he has there's all these preconceptions of who he is going to be that he encounters back in Asgard and then gets to Midgard and is kind of like oh my gosh I'm I'm free of all this and nobody nobody has these I'm not the second son I'm not the like less the less cool prince um the less buff prince um <laughs> and then only to discover like oh no they have a whole other set of stories about me and I'm not a very nice guy yeah so it's it's I think for him it's it adds a new dimension of, of um, to, to that question of choice and accountability. So you, you said that you, you did way too much research, which I, as a fan, I, I'm not a completist. I'm not, I'm not looking, I, here's the thing. I didn't read this book to look for things not to enjoy. <laughs> like I, I loved, I loved your take on the character so much and it, it added depth to other interpretations that I've, I've experienced. And I, so you do all this research how long did it take you? Because you said you wrote you wrote multiple drafts of this, from brainstorming, like Mackenzie, here's the project, to you know close the book, editing's done, good to go. 
how long did it take you to put together this book? Gosh, I can't even remember. Uh, not as long as I want. I wanted more time. Okay. <laughs> I always, I always want more time. I'm the kind of person that I would, I would tinker with everything infinitely. Um, I have to get manuscripts kind of have to be pried out of my hands to get to go to the <laughs> Um, and with Loki too, because like I said, I, I rewrote it a couple of times before I kind of hit my stride. Um, and so I didn't, I didn't get as much time with, especially like the, the final version of it as I wanted, um, because I'd written sort of these, these other dead versions of it, which all like had a lot in common. And I feel like it's one of those things where you have to write it wrong to know what it is to write it right in a lot of ways. Um, but because of that, I didn't have, so it's, it's funny, actually, I was looking over your questions and I have been hearing a lot from fans about this book lately because Loki's on everybody's brain. Um, and people will write to me and be like, oh, I loved this scene in the book. And I'll literally have to pause for a minute and be like, I don't remember. I don't remember who this character is. I don't remember. And part of it is because I just didn't spend a ton of time with the final draft of the book. And part of it is because you write something and then you move on and you move on to the next thing. And then yeah. you, by the time a book comes out, I've been living in the next project for a year usually. Yeah. Um, and so by the time Loki came out and by the time I was doing promo for that book, I was neck deep in Nebula and Gamora and Thanos yeah. and, and all of that. And so it's just, it's an interesting, like the, the disconnect is, is always a little bit interesting and, and funny. And um, it's, I, I, I was glancing over the book while I was waiting for you to, to jump on the Zoom call. And I was like, oh, this is who wrote this? Like, this is fascinating. I'm, I'm pretty good. <laughs> like, <laughs> that, well, it, and obviously, like, the book came out in 2019. Uh, so, yeah. So I, let's see, I got hired by Marvel in 2017. So um, it's been years. Yeah. Though, uh, I'm trying to think when I actually would have like, if it came out in September of 2019, so I probably would have had to turn it in and be finished with it by like, we had, a, okay, here's my, here's my marker. We had advanced copies in June. Um, so I would have been pretty much done with it by June of 2019. Okay. Um, so a year and a half. Year and a half. Well, wow. Like it, that? It, it was awesome. So like. Okay, so speaking of the book itself, I wanted to I wanted to break down just some aspects of the book that I enjoyed that I think other readers might enjoy. And since you know you just said, and I mean it's kind of hard to it's kind of hard to not be engaged with Marvel on any level right now and not be thinking about Loki because we've got you know just literally like an episode left. Um, you know when this interview is taking place. So I wanted to go into some aspects of the book that were just fascinating to me. And the first one, let's, you create- if I can remember them. They might be new to me. Too. Okay, so- <laughs> so we'll, we'll I can remember on. something, I'll just say pass. <laughs> like, a, like a teamwork thing. Uh, so you create this Asgardian relic called the God's Eye Mirror. Yes. I found- I do remember that. <laughs> I found, well, because I, I looked at it and I was like, I don't remember this. From anything that I've read, and I looked on, I looked online a few places. I was like, it only shows up in one place in Mar in Marvel, and it shows up in yeah. this book. Uh, it's, but it's like the God's Eye Mirror is the impetus for the the the, the tension of the story. Yeah, I, I wanted to just pick your brain on like, why why the God's Eye Mirror? Why did you want to create that item to set the story off? So interestingly, when I was going into the project, I remember having a lot of conversations with people at Marvel trying to find, like when I would, I would hit a spot where I was like, okay, so I need like a monster or I need a magic spell or something here. Um, and I would write to the Marvel folks and be like, do you guys have any idea? The sidebar, one of the great things about working for Marvel is that you have the Marvel historian at your disposal. Oh. So literally, I'll email my editor and be like, can you tell me about the Universal Church of Truth? And she'll be like, yeah. And then I get PDF pages of like, here's every time the Universal Church of Truth appears in the comics. Here's everything we know about them. Here's everything. Super helpful. Um, so I would always like reach out to them and be like, hey, can you guys like maybe help me think of a monster that I could use here? And most of the time the answer was like, why don't you just make one up? Which I thought, which was totally opposite of what I thought. I thought they were going to be like, oh no, we want you to really pull from what we have. Don't, don't make things up. Don't, don't start a new, start a new mythology. But they really encouraged that sort of like in, in that, yeah, that creativity, I guess. Awesome. And they, they wanted me to create the canon. And so 
Um, there's some of both in there. Um, so the, the God's Eye Mirror was, is sort of the, the, God, what's the title or what's the, what's the word? Inciting incident. Wow. Writer. Um, so this is my job. Uh, the inciting incident of the book, which is that Odin, uh, so it's a mirror, God, you know, I got to remember. It's a mirror that Odin looks into and, and sees sort of prophecies, these sort of nebulous visions for the future of Asgard so that they can guide his, his realm and it's like a, or his reign. And it's like a big ceremonial thing. And so the book starts with him looking into the mirror and seeing something bad and you don't totally know what it is, but it involves, you know, either Thor or Loki because one of his, one of his kids. Um, and so I wanted to, it, it sets off the whole, what we were talking about earlier, which is it sets off this whole idea for Loki of is who I am already set in stone? Like, am I already destined to be the villain? Am I already, I mean, he's already lived his whole life being like, I am the second son. Nobody's helping me try and break out of that role. Nobody's really like giving, nobody's giving me a chance to be anything other than that. So how inevitable is the rest of my future? Yeah. Um, and so you have this mirror, you have this lit you have a literal prophecy of him sort of turning against Asgard and turning against his father. Um, and then he sort of that hangs over him for the whole book. And then the question becomes, can I, can I change this? Do I want to change it? Um, yeah. And so with that, the, the book sort of starting with an act of prophecy for me really set off the whole question of free will and, and choice and things like that. It, it's speaking of repurposing things like you create the God's eye mirror, um, which, you know, had my, had my, um, had my imagination just running rampant. I'm like, Oh my gosh, you know, Odin says, you know, that he's he uses it to protect Asgard from Ragnarok. And he already has this like thing, like, mm, this feels like a Loki thing. Um, and like, we'll come back to Odin later because I thought Loki and Odin's relationship was so profound um, in, in, in your story specifically, but you, you repurpose another relic in Marvel comics, the Norn stones. Yes. So the Norn stones is something that like, if, unless you're probably like a deep, like comic book fan, like they haven't shown up in the movies. They haven't shown up in like a, a lot of like the, um, the movies are concerned with another set of stones. <laughs> exactly. It's like, we don't want to get confused here. Um, so why, why did you choose to, uh, maybe you didn't choose, why are the Norn stones kind of a, we start out with the God's Eye Mirror, but the Norn stones become very, very important throughout the, the, the unfolding of this story. Mm -hmm. Um, I, like, I kind of came to them the same way that I came to any of the, the, the sort of Marvel references or the, the canon references that are in the book, which is when I was doing my reading, I would run into things um, and then email the Marvel historian and be like, tell me more about this. Um, and the thing with the Normstones in particular is they're very, and this is kind of all of Loki and all of his magic that made this book really challenging is that there's such a specific idea about him, but then I would go back to Marvel and say like, okay, so how does his magic work exactly? And they're like, I don't know, he just like, he does magic. I'm like, okay, but does he, <laughs> like, is there spells? Is there runes? Is there do you have to learn it? Do you have to, can you, can you, can you learn it? Do you have to be born with it? And they were like, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's just, you know, it's magic. All the above. <laughs> yeah. So um, the Nornstones were interesting because they existed in canon. But when I would try and say like, so what do the Nornstones do? They're like, oh, you know, they're just, they're, they're, they're the Nornstones. They do, they do Nornstone things. Like, right. <laughs> Mackenzie, they do whatever you want them to do. Just, well, that's what know. it ended up being was they do whatever you want them to do. And so I was, when, when I finally figured out that was the answer, it was sort of like, okay i'll do whatever i want to do with them um and i really like i really liked putting references to the comics and references to canon things and they're they're canon references that like if you get them you get them if you don't it doesn't impede your understanding of the book at all um and it was really like i, I liked doing that because it made the book feel like it was part of this bigger universe and and part of this bigger mythology and I discovered in Loki that fans really, really respond to that in a way that I didn't expect. Um, and so it was fun when I wrote Mora and Nebula that we had, there's a bunch of kind of deep cut Marvel stuff in there that my editor was really like, like, yeah, you need to like, they love that. Let's put in, let's talk about the matriarch and the universal church of truth. And let's talk about Thanos's weird girlfriend death. And like, let's put this stuff in here. And stuff um, that's not in a movie you're going to watch. <laughs> no. And it, so it's, it's cool. Cause you got, it's kind of like another, it's a it's another layer of this of this world and this mythology and a different way also to engage part of the sorry I'm going to start the sentence five times part of yeah. the reason I think Marvel is so 
fun and so so popular right now I guess is that it exists across so many formats yeah. that it, there's something for everybody if you're not a comic book reader there's novels if you're not a novel reader there's movies if you're not a movie watcher there's tv show. like there's something for everyone yeah. um and so to round all the way back the reason I use things like the Nornstones in the book is because you want to connect the dots and you want to connect the circle and and you want to be part of this bigger universe. So as much as I wanted to create new things and forge new mythology, I also wanted to use established things that are are that Loki interacts with later on in the comics and later on in his timeline. Okay, everyone, episode five of Loki has arrived. We have watched it. It is awesome. So much happened and we need to break it down. So I brought back my wife, Kim, who actually did the Loki preview with us a while back. She is here to talk about episode five with us. Babe, how's it going? It's going great. Hi, listeners. We just got the penultimate, you know, second to last episode of Loki, and we just uh, are, are kind of mind blown with all the questions we still have yet to get answers to, but I wanted to know what were some of your favorite parts of this episode? Well, some favorites were all of the Lokis. All of the Lokis. All of the Lokis. So many Lokis. Um, I really love the very tender moment between Loki and Sylvie. With the blanket. Yeah, with the not-so-cuddly blanket. <laughs> and um, I really... Did she ask him if it's like a tablecloth? Yes. <laughs> I mean, frost giants don't get cold, so they don't need a cuddly blanket. That's a deep cut. It yeah. is. Um, also, I love when our our Loki calls Mobius his friend. That part's yeah. just, like, real good. Hits right in the heartstrings. It does. And classic Loki, building Asgard, tearing Asgard down. I mean, there's just so much happening. So much. So, okay, let's zero in on a few of those things. All of the different Lokis. Yes. So, we got... Uh, classic Loki, like you just mentioned, we got Kid Loki, who was very awesome. I love when he was just like, what was your, your our, nexus. our Loki asks him, what was your Nexus yeah. event? And he just very stoically says, I killed Thor. And it's like, our Loki's like, I've been trying to do that for this long, what the heck? We get uh, boastful Loki, uh, we get President Loki, and we get like the breakout star of this episode, Crocodile Alligator Loki. Alligator Loki, yeah. See, I've been seeing him listed as Alligator Loki, but also... Croaky. Croaky. I've been yeah. seeing mashups of his name. I also saw... I saw a... Someone mocked up a pair of croc shoes and put the horns on them. <laughs> That's really funny. So uh, we got so many different Lokis. Did you have a favorite Loki from this episode besides our Loki? Besides our Loki. Um, ooh, I, can I kind of go a different direction yeah, with this yeah, question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one thing I was kind of disappointed in actually oh boy. was President Loki because like the build up. You know, seeing him in the trailers, I was expecting this More? huge scene of he's ruling either Midgard or Asgard, something where he's President Loki. And it was just kind of like, that's all we got? Yeah. That, that, he literally said two lines. That's it? Um, he gets his hand bit off. and then That nothing. was kind of funny, though. <laughs> and Tom Hiddleston just <laughs> screams. It was so great. <laughs> um. Yeah, I, I really enjoy watching classic Loki kind of, like, really amaze us with how powerful he could be. Yeah. Um, Kid Loki killing Thor is, like, a whole nother that was episode the, we gotta talk about. That was the mic drop moment of the yeah. episode. Because even our, our variant of Loki that we've been following is like, oh, um... Okay, okay. Because yep, That sounds about right. Yeah, the... the he even asks classic Loki and boastful Loki, why do you guys listen to this kid? He's like, well, he killed, Thor's. he killed Thor. So he must know something. He, yeah. He, he, <laughs> he figured something out. Yeah. Uh, we, so speaking of classic Loki, we get a really awesome scene at the end before Loki and Sylvie, uh, act on their plan to get past Eliath and get, you know, past the void to whatever's beyond the void. Which, there's something. There's, yeah, we, we see something at the end. When yep, we'll, Sylvie was right. There's something. And we'll, we'll definitely, we definitely need to talk about that in our predictions part for the last finale. For the finale, last episode, oh my gosh, 
just a matter of days. Uh, so <laughs> with classic Loki, he's portrayed by phenomenal actor Richard Grant. Richard E. Grant. Richard. <laughs> Isn't it that what it is? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. I keep forgetting, like, in Hollywood, you have to, like, make yourself, like, there's another Richard Grant out there, and he's like, hmm, how can I make myself unique? Ah, Richard E. Grant. I have the E. (laughs) So, Richard Grant, Richard E. Grant, my goodness, he portrays classic Loki, who was, there was such a good little bit of fan service in there for people who are fans of classic uh, 60s and 70s uh, portrayals of Loki. I really enjoyed his little sit down chat with Mobius Mm. where he talks about like, you know, we're really at this point in our existence where we can't change. And, you know, there's the moment like, well, anyone can change. Yeah. There's always time. And that leads to classic Loki distracting Goliath with a gargantuan illusion of Asgard. Yeah. And Goliath, the, the big smoke monster, the, the watchdog of the episode, he goes after it. And I just thought that was one of the coolest scenes it was really good. I kind of was disappointed in his costume, though, because I get it was supposed to be kind of cheesy, but it didn't even look, like, well-made. <laughs> it looks like a kindergartner made it. He had, like, the... he, he is, I've been seeing this online. He has the collar. Yeah. He looks like Kermit the Frog. <laughs> That's funny. What if Kermit's a Loki? He's oh, my gosh. golden green. I have, I have seen fan art of Kermit Loki. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my gosh. That's... That's something I never funny. know, something I never knew I needed. Yeah. So we come the to the rainbow connection. Oh my gosh. The bifrost ding, 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 ding. We come to the end of the episode. Sylvia and Loki defeat Elioth. They enchant him. Yeah. That uh, was they, intense. They go through with Sylvie's plan. Sylvie's plan works. And then this giant portal opens up to whatever is beyond the void. Yes. So prediction time. Okay. We have one episode left. We do. What in the multiverse <laughs> is going to happen in this last episode, in your opinion? In my opinion. Um, so we've kind of talked about this in the preview. You thought Kang was going to be the big bad. Yes. And Still I, do, by the way. I, I, I agree with you. I, I've been seeing a lot that, whether it's comic-based, I'm not sure exactly but that Elioth is is with Kang in the comics too and so that that's a very there's a very good chance you were right um and you know I'm just curious to see what beyond the void looks like and what it is I it kind of looked like a like a castle it did and very sparkly yeah yeah it was so I, it was funny when they open up that portal. I didn't like. I didn't have an immediate like. Oh, it's that's that. gotta be blank. Mm-hmm. I, but I was like left kind of with like a little bit of a head scratch. Like okay, this could be a lot of things. It could be, yeah. And I also think just for like what what's going to happen to our Loki and to Sylvie. Um, Tom Hiddleston has already said Loki will not be in Thor: Love and Thunder. Will he be in the Multiverse of Madness? Maybe. That could be a potential thing, but, you know, what's going to happen to them? If they kill them off, I'm going to write to Kevin Feige. I'm going to be real mad. <laughs> you and... Everybody else. <laughs> so, here's my big... And and I haven't really even shared this with you, but it's something that I've, I've caught here and there and kind of just thinking about, like, what would be a very low-key ending? Like, low-key, like... No, or, no, like no. the word low key or low key like no, low key. not like low key. Like what would be a very low key character okay. <laughs> type of ending? And I think it's gonna be a sad ending. I don't want it to be a sad ending. So here's no. what I think is gonna happen. What is Sylvie's one mission been? To take down the TVA. Yes, I have a feeling that she is going to do that, and it may cost us. All the variants. All of our our Lokis. All of everybody. So. In the show. And, and, you know, we're talking about Kang. I feel like this show will basically be the jumping off point to Kang. Then being the main villain that we'll actually see in uh, the Ant-Man and Wasp Quantumania. 
But then in the wider, like, we will see... Like Thanos. He, yeah. He's the big bad, yeah. But I think this is all a setup and introduction to Kang. And I, I think it's going to cost us all of our Lokis. That makes me really sad. What about... Can we talk about... Will Mobius get a jet ski by the end? Yeah. Because I kind of hope that uh, happens. Kang is all fun and... Whatever. I want to know about the jet ski. I want to know if Mobius gets a jet ski. Uh, I... I honestly cannot see a scenario where they don't let that happen. <laughs> I like mean, that, does he go to back happen. to his timeline? I don't. I don't know. That honestly, I think uh, that would just be a missed opportunity if they didn't. They, they already didn't let uh, Owen Wilson say "wow" in the entire show. You so gotta they, do. You gotta do it. Wow! They didn't let him say "wow" in the whole show. <laughs> Uh, but like, they gotta let him have a jet ski. They got to. So, any last thoughts before we jump out of here? We got one episode left. Any last thoughts that you want to leave listeners with today? I want Loki and Sylvie to be together forever. (laughs) I am, I'm so (laughs) in that camp. But also, I just don't think it's gonna happen. It also feels a little weird because they're the same person. Yeah. So I'm like, "Mm, this is like weird because you're dating yourself but i'm totally here for it so i think it's funny that the only person loki could could possibly possibly fall in love with is himself (laughs) he is alone forever then because he's really just with himself but it's kind of poetic in a way that he's always been a loner no one's really understood him so it would make complete sense that the only person that can understand him is just another version of himself yes oh that's So. so true so Okay. Don't kill them off, though. I, Kevin Feige, if you're uh, listening, don't kill them off. If Kevin Feige is listening, he's not working on better things. So, <laughs> Kevin, go back to work. <laughs> so, that does it for Episode 5, Journey into Mystery of the Loki TV Show. Thank you for joining me, babe. I appreciate it. Yeah, we'll see you next week yes, with the finale. Finale. And then in two weeks, we're doing a giant Loki, like unpacking we're gonna look at the whole show we are we're gonna do a giant round table with most of the people that have given you episode reviews and it's gonna be a lot of fun that's gonna be our whole episode we're gonna sit around a shawarma table (laughs) a shawarma table oh my gosh (laughs) so anyway thank you for joining me babe and we'll uh we'll get out of here thanks for having me Okay, friends, that does it for part one of our conversation with Mackenzie Lee. Be sure to come back next Monday to catch part two. It's even better. You don't want to miss it. So be sure to subscribe on iTunes, rate the podcast five stars, give us those glorious five stars, and then review by telling us what you enjoyed about part one of the interview. We would love to hear what you specifically enjoyed about this talk with Mackenzie and maybe even some of our low-key predictions. We've got one more episode left just days away at the time of this recording. We hope you are ready for the finale. It's going to be amazing. So be sure to do that. Then go to our social media and give us a follow. Uh, iTunes, we are at Across the Bifrost. On Twitter, we are at Across Bifrost. Engage with us there. Talk with us. Our DMs are always open. We want to talk with you about Mackenzie's book, Loki, Where Mischief Lies. We want to talk to you about Loki, the TV show. We just want to talk to you about Thor. We would love to have a conversation with you there. As always, friends, thank you for joining us aboard the Rainbow Bridge today. We look forward to when you join us again next week for part two of Mackenzie's interview. And have a great rest of your day. Remember, stay worthy.